Welcome to the Elephant in the Room with Bishop Michael Bellamy. During our last podcast, we talked about protecting mothers and their children. In this week's podcast, we will talk more about protecting our children from sexual abuse. Today's episode is produced by Nastasha Powers and Associate Pastor Corey London Bellamy Sr. It is imperative that we protect our children. Here is the elephant in the room. Every nine minutes, a Child Protective Service Agency finds evidence of a sexually abused minor. The way we start protecting our most valuable resource, our children, is beginning the conversation. Today, we're happy to have as our guest, a familiar guest, and now a producer of The Elephant in the Room, Nastasha Powers. She is a coordinator of advocacy and education for Stepping Stones at the YWCA in McLean County, Illinois. Sasha, welcome back to The Elephant in the Room. Thank you. It's always good to be here. Well, we have a very important topic to talk about and a lot of ground to cover, so let's let's get going with it. So let me ask you first, why is it important for a parent to have a conversation with their children? The first reason that it's important for a parent to have a conversation with their children is so that they can know that their parents are a safe space. Just thinking about the work that I do, we're having these conversations in public schools and it, we're doing it with our youth. But it's even more so important for us to have this conversation at home. And so this was made possible but because of a young, brave girl named Erin Merritt, who was brave enough to tell her story about being sexually abused at the age of six and then again abused from the ages of 11 to 13. And she told her story before the legislator. And so we passed this law for us to communicate in the school. But if the child has confusion and they need more answers and more clarification on what to do if this happens or how to go forward if they know somebody that has been a victim, they should be able to ask those questions at home. Well, I'm 63 years old. And when I was coming along, we didn't have these kinds of conversations. You know, maybe it was just something a part of our generation and our parents' generation for the most part. And there may be some parents or guardians who are uncomfortable with starting the conversation. So how does a parent or guardian start this conversation with their child? It's as simple as a game. They have a lot of games that are called conversation starters. And so those conversations start to open up. You do it during game night or you schedule a special night for you to have these conversations with your children. And you start to ask those questions that they may not be used to you asking so that you can start to educate them in a space that they become familiar with. It's as simple as taking them for a walk or taking them to go get ice cream, going for a drive, 
and changing up the scenery. But the earlier you happen to have these conversations with the children, the more open they will become and the more often these conversations can be had. It's not something that you need to do every week, but it does need to happen often so that they can be comfortable with coming to you. And at what, at what age should these conversations begin? I really believe that they should start as early as toddler years. Wow. Okay. What if the parent, like so many parents, are not comfortable with having this conversation? And if the child says, you know, Ma, Dad, I really don't want to talk about this. I'm, I'm very uncomfortable talking about this with you. How do we overcome the discomfort of the conversation? So the first thing is you can teach them to identify who their safe adults in their family are. And so if it's something that you may not be comfortable with sharing with them, then maybe there's somebody else that you trust that can have that conversation with your children. And then another thing is the more often the conversations come up, the easier it will become for the parent and the child to be having the conversation. One of the things that I often tell a lot of my students and people who are interested in starting these conversations with their loved ones is I honestly don't care who my children talk to as long as they're talking to someone that I trust and I know that they can trust so that if they are harmed or if they know somebody that has been harmed, they have somebody that they can go to to seek help and the resources that they need to be able to go beyond the violence that someone may be experiencing. Does a child have enough uh, maturity to be able to determine who a safe person is? Or should the parent or guardian be a part of making decision of who is safe? It can be a little bit of both. When it comes down to safe adults, one of the things that we want to try to teach our children is to follow their gut. Um, for example, if a ball is being thrown your way, you know to duck, right? right. Because your gut is telling you that mm -hmm. there's harm in your way. So the same way that you get that instinct, a child gets that instinct, even thinking about a baby. When a baby feels like they're falling, they automatically get reflexes, and it's because they feel a pressure shift. And so if we start to teach our children how to trust their instincts, but we are also being very cautious about who our children are around, then we will be able to confirm who is the safe people in their lives. Is it a good idea for a child to withhold from the parent or guardian who their safe person is for confidentiality? Or should they be encouraged to tell uh, who their safe person is? If it is truly a safe person, it shouldn't be something that is withheld. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that we teach our children is there are no such thing as secrets or unsafe secrets. So a child shouldn't be asked to keep an adult secret, right? And that should be the same as an adult not keeping a child's secret that they are being harmed. And so, again, that goes back to us trusting who the safe people are and our children being able to determine who the safe people are in their lives as well. In, in your experience with dealing uh, with um, children, um, teenagers, families, uh, 
have you ever had a, a situation where a child was uh, they were betrayed by the person that they thought they were safe with? Absolutely. Do you mean when it comes down to violence or communicating or disclosing? Well, communicating, disclosing or abuse. It can actually go both ways. So mm -hmm. when it comes down to communicating and disclosing, they may have felt safe with someone and they may have felt like they could trust somebody to be able to keep their secrets. Say, for instance, a teacher or even me. When it comes down to harm in a child, I'm a mandated reporter, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we have to do is we have to disclose to that child that we are a mandated reporter. And if harm is actually happening, we do have to report it. But instead of allowing that child to feel like somebody is against them, you inform them of what the process of actually reporting that abuse looks like and keep them in the know of what's happening. Does that make sense for that first part of the question? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. My my concern is is if a child, a child's trust has been betrayed, how do you rebuild that trust uh, so that that child feels safe again? That's that's transparency being transparent with the child so mm -hmm. letting them know in advance that i do have to report this or if you are being harmed we need to make sure that we are putting you in a safe space so even when it comes down to say for instance someone coming to one of the ministers in the church that that minister is most likely going to do what they need to do to protect that child mm -hmm. and it's not keeping it a secret right and so keeping the child in the know of what's going on, what the steps to that process looks like. And then once you do that, you are rebuilding the trust. They may have felt like they were betrayed, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, because you're transparent with them, you're having that conversation with them and you're telling them the next steps of what's happening. That's rebuilding their trust and reassuring them that you're there to protect them and not to harm them. So who is most likely to be a victim? When it comes down to minors, um, under the age of 18, two-thirds of the victims under the age of 18 are actually 13 to 17 years old. And then under 12, one-third of victims are under the age of 18. Where are they victimized the most? Is this something that happens... In the home, in the school, in a religious institution, among family members, where is this victimization most likely to, to take place? So as much as it hurts to hear this, in actuality, 90% we don't have the settings, right? Mm -hmm. But about 90 to 93% of victims of sexual violence under the age of 18, they are actually victimized by people they know. Wow. It's not a stranger. It could be a teacher. It could be a coach. It could be a family member. Thinking of Aaron's story alone, mm -hmm. the first offender she had at the age of six years old was her best friend's uncle. And then she got re-victimized between the ages of 11 to 13. And that was her older cousin. So 90 to 93% of victims under the age of 18 
they know they're offenders. What about college age students? So that is also a very important question that this is, you need to have this conversation with your college age students as well, right? And the reason why I say that is because we have something that we call the red zone. And so when it comes down to the red zone, this is saying that the red zone is anywhere from the start of college up until Thanksgiving break. That's about 50% of sexual assaults that are happening on campus. It's not even within the full first half of the school year because they still come back from Thanksgiving break and have finals and all of that, the end of the semester term that they have to deal with. So parents need to have this conversation with uh, their children before sending them off to college. Would you say they also need to check in on them periodically and to make sure that they are safe? Absolutely. Think about, especially for a college student, that's their first moment of feeling free. They're Mm -hmm. not under their parents' roof. They may want to go out. They may want to party. They may want to explore. And I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that this is their fault because it's never their fault. It's the actor's fault. But in that situation, not negating, again, in that situation, this is a lot of times where predators will likely offend to your knowledge uh, do our colleges or universities have something in place so that our children can report if they were abused or if they are victim and do they have safe places or safe people on the college campuses Absolutely. So they do have confidential advisors that they can go to on campus. Now, let me put this disclosure in. With confidential advisors, they are still mandated reporters. Even though they're above the age of 18, they are on campus grounds. And because they are on campus grounds, those confidential advisors are mandated reporters and they do have to report if a sexual assault does occur. And so they will investigate and they will do what they need to do to be able to see if this happened and what next steps they need to take for campus to be safe. But I can guarantee you that there is also going to be a rape crisis center or a sexual assault resource center that is fully confidential for college students to be able to talk to, to seek counseling, to get whatever resources that they need, as well as to educate them. So if a parent or guardian suspects that their child has been sexually assaulted, what should they do? The first thing is they should believe their child. The first thing and foremost is to believe them The second thing is to validate them. Don't go into protector mode. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. They validate them. They remind their child that this was not their fault. It wasn't their fault. A lot of times as a parent, as a protector, we want to try to see what could have been done to avoid it. It happened if that's the case, or we suspect it happened, right? And so we also need to support them. And what support looks like is not telling them what to do, but asking them what they need to do in order to be able to start the process of healing. Remember that the parent is not the victim. 
yes, you were affected by this because this is your child. But at the end of the day, you have to allow the victim to survive and become a survivor. And so you lead by what they need. If a child wants to have this conversation with a parent or guardian because they were sexually assaulted, but they feel like that they are going to be blamed. You know, the parent that says, well, why were you out at 2 or 3 a.m.? Or I told you not to socialize with them. And so you brought this on yourself, that kind of blaming the child. Is there a, a large percentage of children that will not have the conversation with their parents, especially in a culture where it's part of the culture of that family to blame? I wouldn't say that it happens in a large percentage of cases, but I will say that it does happen. And in those situations, it's just as simple as redirecting the parent reminding the parent that their child was harmed. And right now we're not focusing on what time they were out. We were not focusing on who they were with because no matter who they were with or what time they were out, they are not responsible for the actions that happened towards them. Mm -hmm. And so it's redirecting the parents first and foremost and making sure that the survivor, the person that was harmed is validated and supported. And in situations as an advocate that that has happened, sometimes you do have to remove the parent from the room to be able to reassure the survivor and then educate the parent before bringing them back in the room. In your experience, are most parents receptive to being redirected and educated so that their child can be can be helped, can be healed the majority of the parents that I have worked with, yes. Mm -hmm. um, we have different situations where we will educate the parent. We will remind the parent that this person is hurting. And so with that being said, it takes them a minute. But we also like to support the parents, right? Because we would like to call them secondary victims or secondary survivors. They were affected by the harm. This does affect them. It takes a mental an emotional toll on them. And so it's just re-educating, it is validating the parent, but making sure that we're putting the needs of the survivor first. And that often does help the parent to see things differently. So you have advocates for, for the children. Uh, are there advocates also for the, well, I don't know if it, you would call them advocates, but is there a support system in place for the parents other than educating them? Because for some parents, it could be just as traumatic for the child. Absolutely. So we do have advocates for the survivor and we have advocates and counselors for secondary survivors as well, because we do understand the toll that it takes on a loved one of somebody that was affected by sexual violence. You hear the word rape or you hear the word sexual violence and it triggers you just like you were in the room with mm -hmm. the survivor mm -hmm. and so it's just like in order for us to help them to heal the survivor to heal we have to also help their loved ones to heal and educate their loved ones on how to support them do you know what percentage of 
children, well, I shouldn't say children, maybe college students or um, those who are young adults and parents who report uh, victimization will go to the next step and press charges? So it's not for college age students. It's not for children. But overall, and this is actually one of my, I think, biggest statistics that gives impact. And in this statistic, it says that out of every 1,000 sexual assaults that occur, only 310 of them will report to the police. Oh, my God. And that's for all ages. Why is that? It's the fear of not being believed. It's the fear of going through the criminal justice system. It's the fear of retaliation. It's so many different fears. It's knowing somebody that went through the criminal justice system and either their case was dropped or their offender, if anything, did get charged but was released the next day <laughs> or, tw- you know, 20 days later, different things like that. It's also the influence of social media. So it's many different reasons why survivors choose not to report. What about stigmatization? That is another thing, too. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a, another thing because they definitely don't want to be t- stigmatized as a victim. And that is one of the reasons by law you will never see a victim named in a report okay. when it comes down to news reports and things like that, even in the courtroom rarely will they give the victim's name and that's a way of protecting them. So um, what happens next? Should a parent automatically report? Remember the parent is not the one that was harmed. And so with that being said, they need to allow the child to take lead. There will be a mandated report when it comes down to it. There's more than likely going to be a mandated report that happens, but they should also allow the child to take lead on what healing looks like for them. And so one of the things that I love about the state of Illinois is if a survivor was to go to the hospital and get a forensic evidence collection kit done, that evidence that was collected, it can be saved for up to 10 years. Okay. So it gives the survivor time to process when they want to report and if they want to report, right? And then after that, uh, between that 10 years, if they make the decision that they want that kit to be pushed through the system, once it is pushed through the system, that DNA is in the database indefinitely. And so instead of forcing their child to report right away, that's a conversation that they can have with the child. They have up to seven days to go to the hospital to get an evidence collection kit done. And then after that seven days, if they get it done, they have up to 10 years to report it. Wow, Give that's a, that's a, that's amazing. Right. And that's because we understand what trauma does to survivors. So I would say, again, allowing the child or the the minor to take that lead, but also knowing the resources and the time frame that they have is very important because when they go through the criminal justice system, it can be very re-traumatizing. As an advocate, do you try to convince or persuade or encourage the child or the victim to to report and to um, to follow through. 
Absolutely not. What I do is what the survivor wants to do. So I'm not going to tell them what to do. Whatever they decide, I'm going to back them up 100%. I don't know if you want to answer the question, uh, this, this question, but this has to be at times very overwhelming for you dealing with these cases of these families, these individuals. How do you how do you handle your emotions, your feelings, knowing that these beautiful people are being abused, uh, are victims and probably traumatized for the rest of their lives. And then you talked about the, the secondary victims. How do you mm-hmm. as an advocate hold it together and you does you don't just start screaming in a room or something? Well, they have a rage room down here. Oh, do they? (laughs) (laughs) So what is the rage room? Is that where you go and close the door and just scream and bounce off the walls? Well, it's actually something where you go and just break a lot of stuff. They can be bats and things like that, and you just break things up. So I will admit to going there one time. But (laughs) (laughs) I need one of those at home. (laughs) It's actually very therapeutic. Uh, What I usually do when it comes down to clients I'm very transparent with my clients I'm a very emotional person and so when I'm in the room with survivors if I'm crying I don't hold back tears now I'm not going to cry more than they are okay but I don't hold back tears but I do understand that the workload that I have it does cause vicarious trauma Mm -hmm. and so because it does carry vicarious trauma I ensure that I do something to kind of reset i'm very aware of what my capacity is and Mm -hmm. i'm very transparent with my co-workers and so if i feel like i'm getting to that breaking point i will communicate with my supervisor with my co-workers and even with my staff okay this was a hard case i need a minute to reset because i don't want to hold that vicarious trauma too long well what you do is this considered sex education It is not. And I thank you so much for asking me that question. This is sexual violence prevention. We are not educating children on how to have sex or details of sex. We are teaching them, not just children, even college age students, how to prevent it first and foremost and how to be able to identify it so that they can seek help. So thinking about Smokey the Bear, only you can prevent forest fires, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And thinking about fires, stop, drop, and roll, thinking about dare, saying no to drugs, all of these did not teach you how to start a fire. It didn't teach you how to use drugs. It taught you prevention, and that's what we're doing. We're doing what we need to do to prevent and to keep our children safe. What are your personal views on sex education for our children in the public school systems? My personal views on sex education, I think that it is somewhat okay for the conversations to start in school, but the conversation needs to end at home. And whatever foundation you have for your children, whatever views you have for your children, that needs to be taught. And the reason why I say that is because what you don't want is the world teaching your children one thing and them not having your values, your views and your opinions on something. You're a believer, a person of faith, I am a pew baby. 
<laughs> if, if, we, if we can say it like that. Let me ask you one final question before we close this segment. What role, if any, do you think the church or the faith community should have in teaching sex education, one, and also being advocates for those who have been sexually abused? I think that if we were able to teach this to our children, they wouldn't be so uncomfortable with having this conversation with us in the first place. Mm -hmm. If we start to teach our children, if we start to have that education, and of course I'm going to enforce it being age appropriate, it wouldn't be a stigma behind it. They will feel comfortable with talking to us. They will feel comfortable with talking to the leaders and it would also help to prevent them from becoming victims because they would know what the expectations were. They would know what rules and regulations are set. They would know the values that we have and they would be able to enforce it one for themselves, but they will also be able to educate their friends and it wouldn't be a conversation that they were uncomfortable about. Well, Nastasia, you have shared a lot of valuable information with us today on uh, this this episode. I certainly appreciate uh, what you're doing uh, in in your community in order to help those who um, have been abused, being an advocate, a voice, and for your faith and your your strength to be able to do a wonderful work. Friends, we, we must have these conversations in our communities. We want our children to be knowledgeable and feel comfortable with and willing to talk about disclosure. The more we educate our children, the more we can prevent child sexual abuse. Once again, we want to thank uh, Nastasha Powers and our associate pastor, uh, Corey Linda Bellamy Sr. for producing today's episode. God bless, be safe, and stay healthy.